Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Focus on your mental health, you surely won't regret. It's mentally, 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 mentally yours. Mentally yours. Mentally yours. Hello and welcome to Mentally Yours, Metro.co.uk's weekly mental health podcast. Today is a very special episode as I'm joined by our fantastic new host, Rachel Moss. She's also Metro.co.uk's lifestyle editor. Before we chat to today's guest, Lucy Nichols, we're going to be having a quick chat just to catch up. So Rachel, at the risk of sounding like a job interview, (laughs) um, tell us why you're so passionate about chatting about mental health. Um, hello, very nice to be here. What a lovely introduction. Um, yes, I am very passionate about mental health. Um, in this day and age, I kind of question why you wouldn't be because it is something that impacts all of us, whether directly yourself or indirectly from people you know. In terms of my own personal experience, my mental health isn't perfect all of the time. I don't know anyone whose is. Um, so I've definitely experienced stress and anxiety and work-related burnout in the past. When that's been at its worst, I've had a period of panic attacks, which was just lovely, um, a period of insomnia and sleepwalking, of all things. Um, so I've definitely you know, experienced mental health issues myself. Um, I've also got a family member who has a lifelong mental illness. And I'm going to be super careful about how much I say about that on this podcast, because you know, I never want to talk about somebody's story that's not mine to share and share too many details but what I would say um, is that if you've you know ever had a loved one who has gone through a mental health crisis and you've watched that indirectly um, it's shit (laughs) and you can't go through that um, without caring a lot about mental health afterwards so yeah I'm very passionate about it really honoured to be invited to be part of this podcast that's you know, doing so many great things. You've done this for years. Um, I'm very impressed. And yeah, can't wait to get going on it, really. So glad to have you. And yeah, it's obviously really close to your heart, which is so important. Um, You've done a fair bit of work in this field as well in the past. Can you tell us a bit about that, please? I have. Um, So I've worked in journalism for about 10 years, mostly lifestyle and entertainment journalism. And in that kind of decade, like the conversation about mental health has changed so much. Um, One of the first things that I did earlier on in my career was a project called Young Minds Matter. Um, And that was something that HuffPost ran um, in partnership with Kensington Palace. So we had the Duchess of Cambridge, as she was at the time, now Princess of Wales, um, was guest editing a whole bunch of content about mental health. And it was super interesting to be part of, I'd say, however you feel about the royals, that it really felt like a watershed moment for me. Like it was the first time the Royals had really spoken about mental health in that way. Um, and then after that, it kind of just opened the door for so many celebs talking about mental health in particular. So I've interviewed all sorts of people in celeb land over their mental health, about their mental health over the years. 
like Davina McCall and Stacey Sullivan, Paige from Steps, he was very fun. Um, so those interviews have always been great. But one of the things I've loved most is talking to, going to use uh, quote marks here, normal people about mental health. So just real life people about their experiences. And also just people who are doing things to try and make the nation's mental health better. That's something I'm super interested in. So one example is I went to go and hang out with the fire brigade um, down in Brixton who've launched this like mindfulness garden and learn all about that. There's somewhere in North London called Maytree who've hosted a safe house for people who are feeling suicidal. Um, it's just amazing work and, you know, it's real honor as Jesus that sounds to go and meet these people who are doing these groundbreaking things and um, so yeah I've written about all sorts to do with this over the years and hopefully I get to do a bit more now um, here at Metro as well. Sounds fantastic and um, yeah super jealous of H from Steps that's pretty, <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty exciting wow what a flashback. <laughs> um, so tell us a little bit about your plans for the mental health content at Metro, because obviously you're a lifestyle editor as well as the host of Mentally Yours now. Yeah, I'd love to. I mean, all I want to do is build on what's already there, because I think Metro, one of the reasons why I wanted to join was because this company does so many great things about mental health. Um, one of the beautiful things that you've managed to do with this podcast event is just build a community around it and I definitely want to lean into that even more so I want to hear from our readers and listeners about their mental health and things going on in their lives and you know and talk to and real people about all of those things um, I'm really interested in solutions-based journalism as well you know it's really important that we cover the tough stuff and we talk about NHS waiting lists the absolute shit show that's facing a lot of people trying to get help but on the flip side of that, like I'm a big, big advocate of positivity, of trying to find good stories and hearing about those things and finding, you know, light in the shade, hope in the darkness and all that kind of stuff. Um, so definitely want to look to do more of that kind of content on the site and in the podcast. Brilliant. And is there anything else you'd like to add about your hopes and plans for Mentally Yours? Oh, well, my biggest hope and plan is that people keep listening to it and that guests keep wanting to join. Um, I know it's unusual having a, a change of face um, kind of behind the scenes, but I hope that as people get to know me, they're excited to still be involved with it. And just thanks for listening up until now. And uh, yeah, if you'd like, if you're listening to this and you've got any ideas of what you want us to do more of, just get in touch. Um, you can probably have a little social media stalk and find me somehow, I'm sure. Um, yeah, it's probably, probably about it in a nutshell. That's a great shout out as well for our social media stuff, because we've obviously got the Facebook page, which is Mentally Yours on Facebook, the group um, where people come and chat. So if people want to share their ideas there, that would be lovely. Um, we're also on Twitter at MentallyYRS. Um, we do post some in some content sometimes on Instagram, but we don't have... An account yet um, but we're sort of moving in that direction in terms of kind of diversifying and looking towards doing videos in future so there's plenty of kind of exciting things coming up in the future aren't there Rachel? Absolutely yeah it's just gonna get bigger and better. So thanks for that um, chat Rachel. So now we're going to bring in Lucy Nickel. So she's a mental health campaigner, she lives with anxiety, specifically health anxiety She's a fantastic writer and speaker. Um, 
I'm so thrilled to have her on the podcast and we're going to be chatting about her book, um, Don't Call Me Snowflake. And it's all about breaking through mental health stereotypes and stigma. My anxiety is still lingering many, many years after it first came to haunt me, I suppose. Um, it started with a panic attack when I was 15. I didn't know it was a panic attack. I didn't know what it was. It was very, very physical. In fact, it felt more physical than anything else, if I'm honest. It came from um, a, a fear of um, developing deep vein thrombosis because it was the 90s and in the press at the time was this pill scare. And I don't think I realised that that was really bothering me, but I found a little mark on my arm and um, immediately, without even kind of consciously thinking it through I thought oh my god I've got deep vein thrombosis which of course doesn't even look like a mark on your arm like I don't know how my brain started thinking that but I had this very very physical reaction where I was retching and I felt sick and faint and my vision went and just was terrified and I was yeah 15 15 16 at the time and then since then I was having these kinds of episodes again still didn't really know there were panic attacks but um they were always health related and yeah many years later i i still do experience it every so often it's not quite as bad i've had lots of different therapists over the years i've learned lots of different coping mechanisms i've um i actually take ssris antidepressants for it and have done for 8 years um but yeah, it still plagues me every so often. Um, but it's very much health related. Although one therapist did point out my anxiety wasn't that fussy and it was probably more generalized anxiety disorder. Um, so yeah, it can come on, but it comes on about the most bizarre things. It's never, it's never particularly um, rational. <laughs> Before we sort of go on to more, more things and your book, obviously, Tell us more about panic attacks themselves, because um, obviously you've written about them, you've experienced them, but there will be people listening who just won't really understand uh, what that is or what it feels like. Yeah, they are strange. They're kind of not what you expect, I suppose, because when you think about if you haven't experienced panic attacks and an anxiety disorder, you probably think, oh, this might be somebody who's working themselves into a frenzy because they're worried about something. So you might think, oh, um, I don't know, if somebody's stressed about work, for example, and they get themselves into a panic and it isn't like that at all. It's to me, it's instant. It, it, it happens so, so quickly. And it starts with this, it starts building with this kind of, feeling of dread and fear and for me this like cold feeling that washes over me it, like prickles at my head um in fact I'll, I'll give you an example of when I felt it the other day but luckily it, it wasn't a panic attack um because I was able to talk myself out I'd watched um a clip this morning about doing a breast check and as I mentioned, anything about sensations in my body, I'm really bad at. But I thought, right, I've got to be a big girl and try and do this and do it properly. Um, and of course, you sometimes feel a bit like lumpy or whatever. 
and immediately I felt this cold just shoot over me because I thought I had felt something and I had to go back and of course I hadn't it was same on both sides you know and probably my ribs or something I was digging at but um it's that it's that instant feeling and then when it progresses into a panic attack so in that instant I was able to talk myself out of it but when it progresses into a panic attack those thoughts catch up with the um the physical sensations and increase the physical sensations so then I start thinking about things like I can't breathe properly or I'm I mean I'll be honest I'm I'm going to die you know that's something I've thought of a lot I had one panic attack where I woke up at about three in the morning with a really dry mouth and I became obsessed that I couldn't um, quench my thirst. And it just became this mother of all panic attacks. So I was in bed. I could feel myself breathing really quickly. I was feeling woozy. I was feeling lightheaded. And then the psychological feelings were kind of like, just dread like this intense dread and then the thoughts that come are am I going to die is something inexplicable going to happen and I didn't have any rational idea as to what that might be just that something is going on and I might die and I remember <clears throat> thinking can I get myself out of this because a part of you knows that it's a panic attack can I get myself out of this by going downstairs and putting the TV on? But then the other part of you says, no, because if you go downstairs quietly and put the TV on and you die, your husband won't know to call, you know, an ambulance. You're dead, it wouldn't matter. But and, and so in the end, I had to wake him up and tell him what I was experiencing because I needed somebody to talk me through it. And I'm really lucky that he, when he was young, he experienced panic attacks. So he knows exactly what they are. And he knows that saying to me, oh, don't be daft, it's just a panic attack, doesn't work. So he, bless him, would sit and talk me through and, and you know, recognise and acknowledge how frightening it feels and maybe try to get me to focus on breathing more slowly or distract me with usually funny, like, cat videos on YouTube or whatever, Um but yeah, and I, I think the other bit of a panic attack that we don't talk about as much is, um, so you have those intense feelings of fear and dread and doom with the physical symptoms, which can be the feeling faint, the hyperventilating. I used to sometimes feel sick as well and my stomach I could get diarrhea as well as part of it, which is lovely. Um, but all of these physical things, tingly fingers and arms, tingly cold sensation in the head but then after the panic attack I think you sometimes feel this kind of flat exhaustion and I when I felt like that I just feel tiny and timid and I know I had it wasn't a full-on panic attack but I had an experience of quite bad health anxiety the other week and we were going to the theatre that night and I just felt like like a child, I felt almost childlike, afraid of people. And I felt like I was almost hiding behind my husband as we went in. And I remember they changed our seats. Um, they'd had some kind of change around of seating for some reason. And I had booked these cabaret seats where you sit around a table. So you kind of got freedom and they booked us onto a, a row. And I just 
immediately I was just like, I can't do it. I cannot do it. Not tonight. I just cannot do it. And they, they were so lovely and they changed us back round. We've got cabaret seats, but um, yeah, it just, it, it just kind of wiped all the confidence and energy and everything from me. And I just turned into this social mouse, <laughs> unsociable mouse, should I say. So yeah, nobody listening to this will be able to know this, but I'm sitting here nodding away because so much of what you've just said massively resonates with me, like the tingly fingers, the feeling exhausted afterwards. And one thing you said was that sometimes you can talk yourself out of a panic attack. Super intrigued to know more about that because I think it's really helpful, you know, when you hear other people sharing their coping techniques. How do you go about talking yourself out of one, like when it is possible? Um, it's, there's a bit of a fine line because I think when you have health anxiety, it's somewhat, a few people have described it as being a bit like OCD because you have this compulsion to seek reassurance. Um, and so I think when it's health anxiety related, I have to be really disciplined not to try to talk myself out of it by finding reassurance and finding myself in this dark internet hole of fear and terror and you know forums where people are probably also like me and looking for the worst possible explanation of what's going on I think the way the tools that have really helped me are well one I'm back off the caffeine and I've been on and off caffeine for a very long time and I think it's because um I I love it because I'm so sensitive to it I get a buzz from it but because I'm so sensitive to it absolutely fuels my anxiety so I've had to come off that again recently because my anxiety has been really bad lately um so there's that um there's obviously the fresh air and exercise getting outside gardening sound like you know god I wish I was cooler and could say yeah going to gigs every other night no gardening um for me really helps just being outside being with my pets really helps listening to purring but in terms of the talking myself out of it there's two things I guess um some of the CBT skills that I learn um I sometimes get out the little notebooks and look at the exercises um that are linked specifically to health anxiety so around like probability um I remember one where I was drawing like a pie chart like what are all of the possible reasons that um so I had an aching thumb so so this is another crazy one. I had an aching thumb and I was convinced that I had motor neurone disease. And I was like, it was on my mind for about two weeks. So I did this exercise and I plotted out into a pie chart all of the reasons why my thumb might be aching. And then what is the probability that it is something terrible like motor neurone disease? And you see that it's this tiny little, and that there were all the, and just seeing that in front of you, illustrated is really helpful and I think the other thing that really helps me is actually I do even even though we know these things like you know I write about mental health so I've learned quite a lot from speaking to lots of people but when I'm experiencing it I need the help of other people so I will sometimes put something on Twitter about experiencing really bad health anxiety and look for people who also know 
have been there and, and, you know, have experienced the same kinds of things because reassurance from them is very different than seeking reassurance from, you know, doctors or dentists or ear specialists. I had an audiologist I was having to chat to the other day because I was so worried about this tinnitus that I've, I've had recently. Um, and I think that if you, if you are seeking reassurance about something you're anxious about rather than the anxiety itself, it can lead you down a, a, a bit of a, an anxious, terrifying path because your anxiety is after that reassurance and it's never going to be satisfied. Um, whereas I think if you are acknowledging that it's your anxiety that is terrifying, um, hearing other people talk about it can kind of diffuse it a little bit, I think, if that makes sense. Um, and I have, I have had, like I went to my doctor the other week and I'm so, so lucky to have such a brilliant GP when I can get in to see her. Um, and she, she doesn't belittle, she doesn't, she takes everything I say seriously, but she's so kind of matter of fact and that really helps me. So I was worried about this tinnitus and before telling me it's nothing to worry about, go home, you need to deal with the anxiety, not the, she actually tested for all the things. That, so she did my blood pressure, she listened to my heart, she listened to the veins in my neck. She took it very seriously and then explained to me why it was nothing to worry about. And so having that kind of logical, scientific explanation really helped me. But I'm also aware that I can't run to the doctors every time because the, the things that I've been worried about are so bizarre and, you know, probably medical conditions you've never even heard about. I watch Silent Witness and hear this strange thing on Silent Witness and I'm like, oh, my nose has been running. Have I got brain fluid dripping out of my nostril? And then I'm on, I'm Googling this true story. This was about a week ago. Um, I know all about that now. So it's, it's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a crazy thing. <laughs> I have to like get a balance really of, of reassurance seeking and talking about the anxiety, the real problem, as opposed to the problems I've conjured up in my head. You mentioned the community on Twitter, which sounds really supportive. Um, but I wonder if you have any thoughts on what friends and family could do um, if someone is experiencing a panic attack or the kind of health anxiety that you suffer from. I think, again, it's that thing of not belittling, but recognising um, that anxiety is in itself a, a you know, a, a quite a distressing health problem. Um so, you know, there's that whole thing about hypochondria. It's not that a hypochondriac isn't unwell. It's that they're not well with the things they think they're unwell with. <laughs> they have an anxiety disorder, health anxiety, I prefer to call it than hypochondria. But um, I think it's it's acknowledging how frightening it can be, maybe reminding the person that they have experienced this before and they got through it. I think that's really helpful. I think some distraction techniques as well. So not, it's not about somebody saying they feel like they've got a panic attack going, oh, read this or watch this funny video. Actually acknowledging it and talking it through, but then 
a little bit of distraction, I think, does help if you can naturally kind of bring some of that into the conversation. Um, and I think just to keep talking and, and being there until it, it kind of calms down. And I think for colleagues as well, when I've been at work, um, I work, I've worked for myself for the past few years, but when I've worked in an office and I felt like I was going to have a panic attack, being able to say to someone, I feel like I've got a panic attack coming on and just them saying, do you want to go for a walk around the office block? And then just chattering on to me while I'm getting fresh air really helps. Sitting on it, pretending it doesn't happen, pretending it's not going to happen makes it worse. I think it just builds it up. Um, so I just think if, you know, if you've got a friend or a colleague or a family member who is experienced panic, panic attacks, it's not the best thing to do to try to ignore it, you know, just get over it, just think better things, acknowledge it, but then build in some distraction as well, I think, in my view. I'd love to hear how you've been getting on over the past few years, because obviously we had the pandemic and that was really tough on everybody's mental health. But living with specifically um, health anxiety, how was that for you? So it was difficult. Um, when we first went into lockdown, I did speak to my doctor. Um, weirdly, not about COVID. It wasn't. I wasn't panicked about COVID. I, I spoke to my doctor about three different things over the phone, obviously, because it was lockdown. And they were leukaemia, um, bowel cancer and ovarian cancer now, I don't know why but I became as soon as lockdown hit health anxiety kind of kicked in it was obviously triggered by what was going on um but it was just different health problems um so I I struggled at the start of the pandemic I've also struggled a bit I think it was as perimenopause was kicking in because I I had, I I could feel anxiety and, and it was different this time because it was more like, it was more like a physical sensation of anxiety, kind of tension and a bit of a dread, but no, but there were no kind of specifics attached to it. So this is in the last sort of six months, this was happening. Um, so long after the pandemic started. Um, but I was just feeling these general feelings of unease and anxiety. And it felt like I was worried that I was, you know, going to be finding myself back in, in the middle of it. Um, but I had so many other things going on. And so when I spoke to my doctor, she, my other brilliant doctor that I mentioned there, she, um, she said, you know, these are all signs of perimenopause because I had lots of other things happening like, um, seriously bad insomnia that I'd never experienced before. I'd always had restless legs, but this was really bad. And these things can link with anxiety as well um, without perimenopause. But um, I also had terrible bleeding that wouldn't stop. Um, I had really bad mood swings. I had all manner of things going on. I'd put on a lot of weight um, and so I actually started on HRT um, and we're now looking at, because I'm on my antidepressants on HRT, we're now looking at a kind of a, a whether I can start reducing my antidepressants a bit 
Um, but we've got to wait and see if things kind of level out. And yeah, I don't know why recently. Um, I think then I got COVID for the second time in February. So I think after I'd started on HRT, things were kind of really good for a while. And then I got COVID in February and had an ear problem, had uh, vertigo and it was quite frightening because I just woke up with it and just felt like I was going to be sick if I moved. And then all of the kind of the talk around COVID, you know, all the fears around, you know, what COVID can do to your heart, what, you know, all these vaccine conspiracies and all of these things, I started really panicking about everything. And since then, I've had really quite bad health anxiety. Um, so, yeah, it's not been good recently. Um, but this is why I am trying to do things, you know, practical things to help. So giving up the caffeine again. I spent the day gardening yesterday. I'm going to spend some time this afternoon at the garden centre and then planting some plants and just trying to get my mind out of my body, if that makes sense. Um, so yeah, I can't pretend, you know, I'm, I'm not somebody who is like, yeah, I found this way of managing it and life's all good and rosy now. Um, but I don't think anybody is, I am having a difficult time, but what I do know now is I know lots of ways to help minimize those feelings. And I also know that I've had these phases in my life and that they do pass. Um, so yeah, it's. It's it's a it's a tricky time for me at the minute, but I'm pretty hopeful. And it's not I'm not the worst I've ever been. I'm really not because I've learned so much about how to deal with it. That's great. It's great to hear that you're hopeful and that you've got so many things in place that help you now. And of course, you've also been very busy writing a book, which we should make sure we talk about. Um, so your book Snowflake is all about stereotypes and stigma and everything like that around mental health. Um, one of the first things I thought when I opened it and started reading it was about your experience. Have you experienced that kind of stigma yourself? Have you been on the receiving end of it? What has that felt like? Yeah, so I think there's two reasons why I'm really interested in writing about mental health stigma. And first of all is because I worked in like PR, media and comms for many years. So because I had an interest in mental health, naturally the kind of the communication and stereotypes around that was really interesting to me. But secondly, I have had some problems in the workplace and both have come about when I've experienced really bad anxiety, crippling anxiety. Um, and I've, I remember being told in an appraisal, in fact, there was a wiggly line drawn which said most people are kind of like this and it was like a nice wavy line, but you are like this and it was very up and down. And at the time I thought, well, yeah, fair enough. But then on reflection, I thought, why is that being discussed in my appraisal? Because I've already disclosed that my panic attacks have come back. It was it was a time when I was, I'd become obsessed with my throat again. I was struggling to eat or drink certain things. I was running into the toilets and checking my throat a lot. I was, yeah, I was getting on the bus and just feeling like really panicked. Um, and my mood swings were all over the place. So having, and, and another time I'd been off with um, really acute anxiety. My doctor at the time described it as, um, is it 
acute stress reaction, I think she called it. So I had a lot going on and um, I was really, really, really bad. I was, um, you know, going to bed at like five o'clock, putting earplugs in and uh, covering my face up with a with an eye mask and putting my head, because I just wanted to shut off from the world because the feelings of anxiety were too much. It was frightening and awful. And um, I experienced stigma in, in the workplace then. And, you know, certainly being marked down on things because I hadn't kept up to date with my my work, even though I'd taken five weeks off for mental health, um, you know, fully supported by my doctor. I had occupational health. I was going to the therapist that work had given me. So stigma is something I've experienced. I'm interested in the media obviously you know from working in it and how powerful the media is and um how words can have such an impact so I'd written a little bit about stereotypes and stigma before and I'd done a lot of work with Time to Change and Mind working on Mind's Media Advisory Desk so working on TV scripts and film scripts um with Jenny Regan who who originally set that up um and so I wanted to explore it in more detail and work with experts by experience and profession to explore some of the things beyond my own lived experience. So, yes, I've experienced anxiety, but I wanted to explore some of the other mental health problems that are really stigmatized. So um, addiction, psychosis, eating disorders working with people who had experienced that stigma and discrimination and also the professional experts who could talk about, um, you know, their areas of research or what what kind of support people could get, et cetera. And, and to really take down why these stereotypes were wrong and why they were harmful. Um, so Snowflake, I think, it, I think it's quite good in that because there's 10 different sort of stereotypes in there. You can just kind of flick in and out of the book. Um, but I've tried to write it with a bit of humour and a bit en entertaining in it as well, just to to make it a more accessible read. And also because I think that while, when we're reading about these things, we need a bit of hope and we need a bit of a friendly community to keep us going, I suppose. I think so many people will resonate with so many things you've said in the book. One thing I'm intrigued to know is how do we get those messages across to the people who maybe don't experience these issues themselves? I'm talking about how do we make sure we're not preaching to the perverted? Because that's so tricky when we talk about stigma. I think a lot of us all have experienced these issues and want these issues to stop. But how do we get that message across to the people who are perpetuating them? So that's the challenge. And that's certainly what like Time to Change, for example, was doing. It was one in four people experienced a mental health problem. They wanted to reach the three in four who didn't. Um, and that's why I think when I wrote the book, um, if you look at the um, blurb on online, you know, it's very much this is not a book of rules. It's not about saying you're wrong, you know, part of the culture was, you're wrong, you shouldn't be saying this, you bad, terrible person. It's just having a really honest conversation about it and, and looking at why, um, how it affects people if you say certain things or dismiss certain things and what's the reality. So I've tried to be really open about that and open about the fact that 
I get it wrong sometimes as well. So I think that's that's one way of trying to bring other people in is to not pretend that I'm some kind of perfect mental health stigma buster, you know, like we all get it wrong. We all get it wrong from time to time. And acknowledging that and saying that it's okay to acknowledge that if you have if you're prepared to learn from it and if you're prepared to understand how it impacts people so I've tried to do that to reach those people but I think um, also obviously it's important to take part in podcasts with a focus on mental health because that's what the book is about and then you might have people who haven't necessarily experienced mental health but have an interest in it through their profession for example but also I've taken part in like other podcasts so um, like the book shambles podcast with Robin Ince um, so that there are people listening who are interested in books more generally. Um, so hopefully getting that conversation out there. And I think also, I've, I'll be honest, I've tried to be a little bit clickbaity with it. You know, it's called Snowflake. I want people to think, oh, is, is she? You can you can quite clearly see on the front, don't call me Snowflake. But, you know, which side of the fence is she on? Because let's face it, it's very polarised these days, isn't it? Um, and, to, and to have a look and... Um, I've been a bit kind of upfront about who wouldn't like the book as well. Like, I really don't think Piers Morgan would like the book and I really don't think Katie Hopkins would like the book. <laughs> so just trying to tap into that polarisation and to um, kind of show that it's a problem. But actually, if you look at this book, it's not a book of rules. It's not about right or wrong. It's just about learning, understanding and growing, I, I think, and acknowledging that words are really powerful. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the um, the title because I was going to ask you about that and sort of why you went for it because it's it feels like a really sort of zeitgeisty word, doesn't it? That get used gets used a lot and it's sort of banded around a lot. Um, so why did you go for it? So it started, I think, when I was I was writing a, a chapter about mental health stigma more broadly. So not looking at the specific. Um, mental health problems but just the fact that we are talking about mental health more and what came to mind immediately was the use of the term snowflake and obviously it's used more broadly in culture wars in you know the whole conversation about cancel culture and woke and you can't say anything these days and everyone's too soft and you know all of this nonsense um but it has been used so much to dismiss people talking about mental health specifically. Um, there were there was the headline in the Daily Star a few years ago, which was um, Snowflake Kids Get Lessons in Chilling, which was because the school was um, putting mindfulness classes in place, which I think is a really good thing to do. But apparently you're a snowflake kid if you, if you do something that builds your resilience, which to me is just a really backward thing to say. Um, but I'd, I'd seen it in other areas, you know, when um, there was an article of somebody speaking to a class of, I think there were A-level students and um, they were horrified at some trauma that was being discussed. It was quite awful stuff that they were discussing and um, the word snowflake was used to describe those kids. And I just think it's ridiculous and... Um, so I wrote about why it isn't snowflakey to talk about mental health and how um, 
you know, people have this misunderstanding of resilience. Resilience isn't about burying your head in the sand and ignoring. Resilience is about looking something in the eye, naming it, dealing with it. And I think that's what people are doing when they talk about mental health. They're not shying away from it. They're not being ashamed. You know, it's like someone said it was a uh, somebody on Twitter said, if a kid falls off a bike, you tell them to get back on again. And I, I said, well, yeah, you do. But if you tell them to get back on and with a cycling helmet and they've done the cycling proficiency and they've got a decent bike, then they're going to be much, much safer and stay on the bike longer. And I think the same with mental health. If we if we acknowledge it, if we open up lines of communication, if people get support, they're going to stay stronger for longer. Um, it's not weak. It's building resilience. So so that that's where the chapter came from. And I think that obviously when it was coming up with a name for the book, it was what's going to be the most provocative. <laughs> so the only problem is, is that some people think, um, oh, is it for younger people? And I think that's because the younger generations have been subject to that as an insult much more. Um, and yeah, I think that younger people will get something out of it, but it isn't just for young people. It's, you know, I'm 45 this year, so it's certainly not just for young people. It's got my experiences in it. Um, but I think calling it Snowflake was really to get people's attention because like we were saying about um, mental health, sometimes unless you think, unless you've experienced it or know somebody who's experienced a mental health problem, you might not necessarily seek out a book about mental health, whereas this way it was more, it, it could have been taken more broadly and then people might open it up and hopefully become engaged with the writing and the, the experts within it. Um, so yeah, yeah, it was a shameless attention grab, but that was very, um, very much a part of what we're trying to say. Yeah, it definitely draws people in that headline. Sorry, I'm still speaking like journalist. Yeah, that um, book title. And then also just the way it looks, you know, with the black and the white, it is very striking as a book. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it does sort of really grab you, which is, it's, yeah, really, really smart way of doing it. Um, I was just wondering if there were any sort of big surprises for you um, as you were going through and researching this, speaking to the experts involved. Oh, I learned so much. I, I It was such a brilliant experience. Um, I think that <clears throat> the areas where I particularly learned a lot, I think, were <clears throat> the, the topic of personality disorders. And I was chatting to um, a Dr. Helen Casey, who has worked a lot with people who have been diagnosed with personality disorders. And what was interesting in that chapter was actually asking people how they feel about the diagnosis of personality disorder. And so what I found interesting there was um, how people had very different opinions. And sometimes it wasn't so much the personality disorder label, it was the kind of personality disorder. So if you had somebody who was diagnosed with, now let me get this right, anxious avoidant, I think it is, personality disorder, they felt more comfortable or obsessive compulsive personality disorder felt more comfortable with that label than with borderline personality disorder as a label because of the stigma around BPD. Um, but of course, then the personality disorder label actually looking at how there are so many very, very, very different um, 
experiences and problems within that that you just cannot compare you know bpd versus um well you could get into psychopathy you know they're completely different things so the fact that you've got personality disorder bringing everything under this one umbrella when these experiences are so so varied um was I thought I thought that was interesting to explore and I spoke with Dr Craig Malkin who is a Harvard psychologist about that um and how the use how useful the term personality disorder is so it's it's basically about accepting acknowledging that somebody has endured quite complex mental health problems for such a long time that it's become a part of how they deal with life and a part of how they interact with people but it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with their personality at all and you know it means they can be quite vulnerable um certainly with things like bpd very very vulnerable um the other thing i mentioned dr helen casey i learned about um why there might be stigma within the mental health sector when people present with personality disorders that was a really interesting discussion because what she was saying was that you have people in general mental health services who are treating people with very complex mental health problems and becoming frustrated that they can't you know cure them in six less sessions of cbt i mean you can't with most mental health problems anyway but with personality disorders what Dr. Casey was saying was that, you know, when you get a therapist or psychologist who is particularly interested in that area, they are less likely to become frustrated with the patients because they have a much more deeper understanding of what it means to have a personality disorder diagnosis. And so if they come back every, you know, they might they might be discharged but then come back in six months time needing more help they wouldn't see that as a failure they don't see it as a failure they see it as well that they've done really well for six months but they need a bit more help now um so they don't see that whole revolving door thing as as a problem they just see it as this is the kind of support the kind of ongoing support that some individuals with very complex mental health problems might need. So I found that really interesting. And another topic I was really fascinated by was exploring, um, it was in the chapter, Don't Call Me Bad. So that wasn't about specific mental health problems, but it was about people who, due to mental health problems, trauma and social experiences might end up in the criminal justice system. And then the additional stigma that they have on top of everything else they've been through um, and how they can get trapped in that because they're not getting the right kind of support and because of the stigma and how that they can get trapped in that cycle. Um, so that was really fascinating. And I spoke to um, Richie Cunningham, um, who had, has worked in, I think he's based in Gateshead. He's worked a lot in the... Um, criminal justice system that was and, and Beverly um, who I was going to say Beverly Gray then because that's one of our friends and her, so that's terrible that her name's just escaped me um, but Beverly who um, Beverly Hunter who has worked in um, criminal justice and worked with some really vulnerable people who 
you know, may have actually ended up in the criminal justice system because they were subject to abuse, for example, and may have been, um, you know, they may have been shoplifting to feed themselves and their family or, you know, there's so many reasons why people end up in the criminal justice system, but whatever happens, they come out with this label and it just seems so, so wrong. So those two areas, I learned so much from speaking to um, the experts and, of course, people who had experienced um, that diagnosis or, or, or being in the criminal justice system. That was really interesting. Yeah, it's really, it's really fascinating stuff. You cover so much in the book. We couldn't possibly get into the whole thing in one podcast, but what is the one kind of overarching message you want to get across to people buying it? Um, I would say to um, try to step back from this polarised society that we're in and try to just just give it a go just like you know whether it's reading my book or whether it's just learning more about mental health generally before you judge somebody so I think you know if, if you if you think somebody speaking on social media about their mental health is attention seeking please just read the attention seeking chapter but please just read about some of the things they're talking about, whether that's going onto the Mind website and reading about people's personal experiences because people don't attention seek for the fun of it. Well, I'm sure some people do, but when it comes to mental health, that's very rare. Um, I think people are talking about it because there's a need to talk about it. They either want to break stigma or they need some support themselves, like when I've spoken about it. So I think the main thing for me is just try not to judge and try to put even just invest just half an hour of your time in learning more about the mental health problems that you may have previously dismissed and nobody's saying you're a bad person for doing it just use it as an opportunity to learn I think. If you've been affected by any of the issues we've been chatting about today please give the Samaritans a ring on 116123. If you've enjoyed the show, please give us a rating um, on iTunes. Five stars would be great. You can also find us on Facebook. We have a Facebook group called Mentally Yours, and we're also on Twitter at MentallyYRS. See you next time. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.